us to think as we go into lunch about the gut-brain axis and the powerful analog system of our immune brain, also thought of as a mobile brain. So the cranial paradigm is what I'm here to question and to offer you questions about. Uh, mainframe, right, is, is a kind of discourse that haunts the field that we're talking about. And the cranium kind of comes with that metaphor that, that we all live by. So the real question I'm offering is what do we mean when we say the word intelligence? Because the immune system is this fascinating, distributed, mobile, circulating system that learns, that teaches at the you know, level of the cell, um, and that has memory, right? Some of which lasts our entire lives, some of which has to be refreshed every 20 years, every 12 years, a booster shot every 10, six years. So this is just an, a very fascinating component of our body's intelligence that, as far as we know, is not conscious, but even that has to be questioned and studied. So as you go to lunch, you will be putting things in your mouth. You will be putting things that are not yourself into your body. And your body, hopefully at this point in its existence, knows better than to reject these not-self proteins and not-self photosynthesizing cells and so on and, and, and pitch you into some sort of immunohistological response, right? But to say, oh, this is friend. This should be tolerated. This, I will learn, I, this aggregated entity of self will learn that these things are friend. These things are to be tolerated. These things are to be learned from and incorporated and not rejected. But if that same food were somehow, you know, injected into your lungs, right, you might, you might have a violent asthmatic response. You might actually die from that. So the immune system is using the mouth as a category to learn and to train, and to take in, and to learn tolerance. And then every other part of the dis distributed system, and which now seems to be located in some way in the lymphatic system, right? It took scientists a long time to figure out where this learning and training was happening. So it seems to be in the lymph system. And if things are introduced there by the injection at the doctor's office, a whole different set of learning is instigated and no, this is not self and this is not friend and, you know, this needs to be expunged and eaten by the macrophages and um, remembered as not self, remembered as enemy. So I just think this is an extraordinarily powerful metaphor and I think it's one that in parallel with AI and with computer science is now in active transformation. In other words, most of our pharmacological economies are organized around antibodies. But the probiotic industry, which is completely unregulated by the US Food and Drug Administration, is expanding through essentially folk medicine. So when my own immune system was, you know, quasi-destroyed and rebooted by chemotherapy, I was like, okay, how do I rebuild this? What are the probiotics? What's out there? Right? And that is totally in folk medicine and in proprietary corporate formula, 
right? So I can, I can know that it's some kind of yeast, but I can't know what exact subspecies owned by that corporation is that I'm trying to, you know, re-educate my immune system with by putting it in my mouth and saying, this is your friend, please rebuild this bacteria to replace the bad ones that occasionally get in there. So I think this is a moment of paradigm shift in multiple fields where, we be, where we're beginning. In other words, I'm recommending that we, we think about the way Catherine Bateson describes some of her father's work that, you know, mind does not necessarily stop at the skin, right? That we are completely symbiotic on, this, on these planetary systems that form and have formed our consciousness and our capacities to learn and to navigate and to remember. And that, by the way, through our lifetimes, we become hosts absolutely necessarily and, and dependent on our survival for xenobacteria that we invite into our bodies and, you know, cultivate and grow as part of a self that is not yet our self, right, that is a not-self that we cohabit with and are completely dependent upon. So I think this is a really, I mean, I just throw this out as a complete provocation, um, which I'm supported by through the cultural evolutionists we call artists, who are making art forms out of biological materials, out of living materials, to help us think through our symbiotic dependence on other life forms and our interesting, non-conscious negotiation with self and not self every day. Um, and I can be very brief and leave it at that. So I have no idea if I'm capable of answering any questions, but I've responded um, very positively to some of the comments, you know. I mean, Frank's comment about, you know, maybe just being in the world, being embedded in an environment and letting that sort of surfing Right, that kind of ongoingness and negotiating with inputs that are analog and um, need to res be responded to in a kind of an adaptive and um, flexible way. I mean, I think this is what I would call intelligence. And the body is an amazing model that goes way beyond mind of how learning and memory and... Um, you know, how epigenetics, how we, we can craft our epigenetics through certain cultural acts and practices, how we can uh, supplement them prosthetically, uh, epigenetically. Anyway, so this is just my provocation to sort of reboot AI on a, on a certain model of, um, you know, what Gibson would have called, you know, environmental and ecological, and ecological perspective. I'm curious what the, the current immunologists sort of uh, high-level model of the immune system ends up being. Because for a long time there was network models of the immune system where there are you know, antibodies and anti-antibodies and so on. There was this kind of notion of dynamic equilibrium in the immune system and so on. And I'm curious, I've been sort of following this for, vaguely for years, but I'm curious whether people here know what the, what the current, you know, if you ask a random immunologist what is your high-level view of the, uh, the immune system, mostly, in my experience, tell you a very low-level view of a very specific part of the immune system. But there were, there used to be at least, these network theories of the immune system and so on, which were. And it's interesting, perhaps, to compare those with the current models for brains and neural nets and so on. But I'm just curious whether people know what the, what the current
right so. i i'm not i'm not going to be able to answer that because i mean in part one would ask are you speaking of theoretical biology or are you speaking of practical immunologists well, I'm I'm in a hospital about, setting um, right but i'm talking about when people say you know there are t cells that interact and they have you know for example okay the, you know there are whatever 100 billion possible types of antibodies and we any particular person has some number of those antibodies in reasonable concentrations. I don't think it's yet known how many of those antibodies of those. You know, you could you can do an assay for a particular antibody, right. but this question of how many of the hundred billion possibilities do we have in decent numbers, I don't think that's known. And the question is what maintains the kind of you know, you start getting more and more antibodies, why does it not run away? What right. So the, the obsession so the obsession has been on the antibodies. And that is part of the systemic immune system that has received all the research, right? What hasn't been researched is the mucosal immune system, which is sort of what the system that learns, the system that builds tolerance, the system that trains and takes in and negotiates the self-not-self. And part of the example of this is a neuroscience um, boot camp I took at Penn, which was great. And in part of the presentation, somebody said, oh, and then they're the glia, and you know, <laughs> now, what are the glia? Oh, they're not important. They're the house cleaning staff. And I said, okay, I'm a feminist. The house cleaning staff is important to me. <laughs> and you, by the way, your model of mental illness is a, a, a serotonin reuptake inhibition model. So you're kind of dependent on the cleaning crew to manage this uptake, right? And, you know, the conversation, basically there was this tiny window onto an under- researched entity in the brain that is entirely, it turns out, entirely involved in the immune system. So it used to be thought that the blood-brain barrier, the, the brain is somehow isolated in its beautiful ivory, ivory cranium and it just doesn't have to deal with the immune system and it's kept away from all those diseases. Well, no, the glia are there actively cleaning up, managing the garbage that is produced by the phages that are eating toxins and determining what is self and so on and so forth. So I believe, not being a scientist in this world, that they are at the edge of shifting into some very different kinds of research on not the heroic actors with their shields and swords, but the cleanup crew that is determining what how the body will actually go forward. Rod? Yeah, Rod. Yeah. So um, I, want to, I want to talk about two things. One, taking up, taking up on that. Um, you talk about the immune system as a separate system, and we have the gut neurons, right. which are a separate one. Even C. elegans, C. elegans, which has right. 302 neurons, 20 of That's them. your flat one, right? No, 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 no. no. C. So elegans is, a, is the nematode. It's even smaller. Oh, the nematode. 302 neurons, 20 of which are in a separate gut uh, uh, brain than the central brain, and they have 56 glia cells. Um, so even down that smallest thing, we see this structure. But you were talking about the, the immune system in an interesting way. It's learning, uh, teaching, et cetera. Remembering. Remembering. And then we look at, when we look at uh, plants and their capabilities, they don't have neurons either, but the roots go out and search, the leaves do all sorts of things. There's a lot of activity. And so, um, just like these, the uh, uh, the neuron bigots, the neurons are the only important <laughs> cells in the brain, and the glia are not important. The fact of uh, 
The what? neuron suprematists. Yes. Yeah, okay. But it's even worse when you think about non-animals because right. there's stuff happening and we don't have computational models for that, interestingly, which gets back to my earlier, earlier thing. When do we have computational models? When don't we have computational models? Because plants are obviously doing something very interesting in the way they adapt to their local environment and adapt to what's happening and, and change themselves. Right. So I think, you know, this gets back to something that you were talking about, uh, that you were talking about, Ron, about adaptation, which is, you know, there's one dimension, which is one of the things that Turing realized, which is the idea of breaking up something complex into a process where you can describe the various kinds of parts of the process. And that's kind of the big idea of computation. One kind of intelligence is being able to do that. But then another idea is being able to represent something that's external to you, being able to take the external structure of the world and actually some way that we don't quite understand, get a veridical uh, uh, account of what's going on in the world around you, or adapt to what's going on in the world around you. And I think I think there's really interesting questions about what the relationship is between those two kinds of intelligence, and they're not necessarily they might be orthogonal to one another in various ways. So what you know what something like deep learning does is do solve this problem of trying to adapt to the external world in a very 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 simple way. I mean, what it does is just give let you take the statistical structure of the input, take, let you take the statistical structure of something like the images on the, on the web and incorporate those into a, a, a system that's producing a particular kind of process. But that's a really, really primitive way of relating to the external world. And I don't think we have a very good account or a very good theoretical account of how that process of adapting to the external world is related to the process of being able to compute. I don't think we have a, I don't think we have a good story. I don't think we have a good story. True, and I think that in parallel to the neuron the neuron suprematists, we would have the representation fetishes. Right? So part of the definition of, of intelligence is always like so this representation model. And I don't think when we think about the immune brain, I don't think we need to imagine the glia having a representation of the body or even a map of the body. It has pathways to circulate in. Uh, it might even respond to some, um, you know, vessel-making components of the body to make new pathways if it needs them, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know those mechanisms, but the point is it does not need a representation of the body. It needs to know where it needs to go, which is a different sort of problem. So I'm really, I'm really just pushing this idea of distribution, um, homeostatic surfing, on, on worldly engagements that the, that the body is always not only a part of, but just enabled by and symbiotic on, and adaptation as not necessarily defined by the consciousness that we like to fetishize. You know, so is there, are there other forms of consciousness? And here's where the gut, the gut brain axis comes in. Are there forms that, you know, we, we describe as, as visceral gut feelings that are actually a form of humming consciousness that we're getting through this immune brain. The bioartists, when they, they look at microbiological forms or plant forms or animal forms or other things, do they do they suggest is there something suggested in the among the artists that might give us a different set of metaphors or conceptualizations of consciousness? Right. Well through the artists I'm suggesting something. I'm coming up with this idea of symbiontics, as in other words, ontics being that which is, 
and symbiosis being that which I wish we could be more completely aware of as we navigate this world. So many of them um, work with concepts and materials in the gallery that prompt me to think more robustly about our interdependencies. What are the artists doing? Well, um, they're using, in some cases, bacterial motors to turn, as we experienced in Berlin, um, to turn the lights of the gallery on and off and raise the window blinds. And, you know, so the bacterial motors are entrained with other forms of AI in, in digital computations that are responding to the presence and absence of humans and their movements through the space as if we were invaders of a non-self that the gallery must then respond to as a kind of immunological distributed system. So, I mean, you could think of these metaphors in lots of different ways, but the artists are, are helping, I think, in my argument, they're helping us evolve toward a more, you know, symbiotic understanding of our place. So what angle is um, thinking about self and not self in cognition and intelligence? I mean, you, we could bring in the literal immune system, as you've done. We could also, you also kind of think about a, perhaps a separate cognitive immune system, of drawing the self, non-self distinction yeah, yeah, at nice, the cognitive nice. level. I think a lot of that is actually kind of done by things like trust. So, um, so my smart, if you ask about self and non-self in, uh, in cognition, you know, my, my smartphone is totally self. It's not non-self. It's not something outside which is oh, I, coming in. You never in. get spam. You never get <laughs> yeah, okay, spam. Okay. They're, they're, it, it, it's, it's app sensitive. It's context sensitive. But you know, but you know, the, the phone numbers, Google Maps. Most of the time, that's just that's just self. That's my navigation system now. And partly, it's like I treat it as self. I trust it. It's here. I use it. I trust it. You know, maybe uh, maybe the weather app. Oh, uh, okay. So that's uh, that's self too. And it basically, basically becomes an extension of my. Cognition because so it's my cog a prosthetic, because it's my prosthetic yeah, becomes prosthetically yeah. part of the mind because my I choose to trust it and identify it as self. Now there's other stuff out there, yeah, the stuff that the, the spam that comes in over email, who knows what on the web, where I I say, okay, well I'm not going to trust this. I'm going to regard this as not self, and that no longer becomes part of my cognition. But it seems like the, you know this is the way that cognition actually gets distributed out from our brain into the environment is by so part of what I'm advocating and what the art is helping me to do is advocate for a much broader self that is actually, I mean, in other words, we know that humans have evolved clothing and language and heating and HVAC and architecture. And if we take these things away, if we take away industrial food, I mean, you know, we'll survive, I don't know, maybe two weeks. So, I mean, in other words, it's partly to acknowledge our existence as social animals, to acknowledge that the cranium is not where we do most of our thinking and being. And to try to see what our artificial systems, our prosthetic systems, how can we, how can we help get them to help us acknowledge our embeddedness? Because, you know, partly I see this as a planetary dilemma. I mean, if we don't feel our place in the planetary ecosystems, I mean, we deserve to go extinct, which we will. Well, I was going to ask whether you think hormones provide another form of intelligence, adrenaline, for example. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the idea that um, the, the psychiatric diagnosis is being made on the basis of which drugs you respond to, which are, in fact, influencing hormone cycles and their reuptake by the brain. I mean, I, I mean, all of these things, if we look at how we're actually practicing this medicine and dealing with this thing we call the brain, then the mind is totally distributed throughout the body and 
I think hormones are very much a part of... Could you um, say something about the civil war that occurs when the body turns against itself, Crohn's disease, so, arthritis? So this is a beautiful know. thing, um, because the, thing. The, the, the immunologists are arguing, along with the anthropologists that have worked with them in this one article, I'd be happy to share with anybody, um, Cohn and Martin, those who have ingested in the oral tolerance portal that which their immune system is turning against, say collagen, in the form of certain autoimmune diseases. If they're ingesting, it doesn't have to be human collagen, right? There's enough molecular similarity between cows and chickens and, you know, that if you inject, if you ingest rather than inject um, this form of collagen, your body is like, oh, I actually don't need to attack that. That's actually an okay thing, collagen, right? So the question may be, why is the body attacking its own collagen in the first place? But actually, there are now clinical studies showing that if you ingest orally the thing that your body is attacking, I mean, even neural sheaths, right? If you inject, I mean, this is in mice, right? If mice are given neural sheaths without adjuvants, without things that are alarming their immune system, they will stop having MS or something. I mean, you know, their, their sclerota will stop being attacked by their body. So, I mean, they're, they're incredibly promising therapies that are emerging from this. But the system can make mistakes. The system absolutely can make mistakes. But if you think of the, the form of the vaccine, you think you're just getting polio, but you're getting polio surrounded by a witch's brew of cholera and diseased bacteria mm -hmm. and things that are saying to your body, this is really bad. Just turn against this, right? So it's the adjuvant, right? And what adjuvants are we taking in? In the forms that let's hope Monsanto isn't on those fields out there. But I mean, you know, the pollution, the pesticides, these are adjuvants that are alerting us to attack certain things as toxic that then may be disrupting other parts of our immune system. So, asthma, for example, there's an interesting, again, this is still in the realm mostly of folk medicine, right? But the idea is that if you eat local honey, what you're eating is the bees concentrate of all the airborne proteins and pollens and dusts. In the local honey, you're eating all of your local airborne potential triggers, and you are learning, you are training your body to tolerate them by eating the local honey. And so that then reduces asthma because you then, you know, now urban asthma is very bad, so should you be eating cockroach feces to reduce your, or should you just get rid of the cockroach feces, right? I mean, this then becomes a social problem, but it, you know, I'm just recommending this as a model of intelligence, which is quite distributed, not conscious. Uh, does it have an ethics? I mean, it certainly has goals, but they're, they shift every day, depending on, you know, what part of the system encounters what not self element. So I just think it's a it's a very challenging and interesting metaphor. Well, to I would be say thinking. the immune system has pretty stable goals, which is uh, evolutionarily to protect a host. It sounds like a reasonable thing. I mean, the methods change every day depending on the challenge, but the goal is pretty stable. But the prevalence of autoimmune disorders, you know, I mean, you yeah. then yeah. you then have to say, you know, or something like cancer. You know, we kind of assume cancer was always there. Why was that not evolutionarily eliminated, right? So we're looking at a system that didn't completely eliminate these things that seem like they would have been evolutionarily problematic. Yeah. So 
is the goal wrong or is the system kind of messed up or do we just need to see this kind of homeostatic navigating as part of life, part of how... Are you saying evolution is not finished? <laughs> well, let's hope it's not. I don't know. Do we want evolution to be finished? Yeah. So, are you suggesting that the reason there's a rise in autoimmune diseases is because there are more adjuvant-like things in the environment? Well, that is the that is the suggestion on the table. It's not my suggestion. It's... What's the leading suggestion for what the adjuvants are? Well, what we describe as pollutants is probably a pretty good jump category. Benzenes, you know, BTEX chemicals, pesticides. I mean, things that we have produced either as byproducts of energy or to actually kill life biocides, you know. I mean, Rachel Carson wanted to call them biocides because they're not just killing pests, right? So epidemiologically, that would be a fairly easy question to test, I would think. Right. And I think they're now beginning... That's, a, that's an interesting theory. It's not they're, now beginning, they're now yeah. beginning to test this. But, you know, you, you have to understand that you're dealing with industrial food and industrial medicine where those haven't been the leading research questions. Monsanto doesn't want us to ask about that. Monsanto wants us to buy Roundup. So it's hard to get that research done into whether, you know, people living in low fields near Monsanto are having more autoimmune diseases than people who don't. It's hard to find people who are not living near Monsanto drift. So, um, but, but these are really important questions and I, I think they are starting to be tested. Okay, time for lunch. <laughs>